Uh, it's Hermeneutics 101, how to read and study the Bible. I want to be able to accurately and richly benefit from God's Word. For those who don't know me, I didn't introduce myself last week, but my name is David Kaposha, and it is a joy and a sobering privilege to be leading you in these lessons. Just a reminder, this series is based off of this book, Living by the Book, The Art and Science of Reading the Bible, by Howard and William Hendricks. Uh, a lot of my material, even if I'm not quoting them directly, is just drawn and um, used from that book. So I would recommend it. And again, why this series? Well, so many excuses lead us away from the Bible and cause us to believe things about it that are not true. Things like, oh, it's too confusing to understand, or it's not interesting, or it's not trustworthy. It's not necessary to study personally. You can just get it from your pastor or your Bible teacher at school. But we want to recenter ourselves on what is true about the Bible, that it is perfect, that it is wondrously compelling, that it's readily understandable, that it's purposeful in every detail, that it's written precisely for us in our day, in our country, in all our different situations, and that it's written for every Christian to know and to study, no matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, or how many times you are going to church or going to Christian school. We want to learn, and we want to use a method that reflects those truths about the Scripture so that we might delightedly feed on the Word of God as we were designed to, understanding what God meant, and then being convicted of sin, being changed, loving God more, being filled with joy as we follow Christ and as we walk in the works that he prepared for us to walk in. Just a little bit of review from some of the things we talked about last week. We introduced ourselves to a simple method. What was that method, and what are the steps? Anybody remember? Three steps. Yes, Bill. Very good. Observe, interpret, apply. That's the method I want you all to be able to remember because that's... That's the method that reflects these truths about the scriptures, that it's perfectly and purposefully, purposefully written. Now, what questions are we seeking to answer in each one of the steps? Like, for observe, what question are we asking? It's another interactive. Remember, I, I need you guys to participate. I think that'd be, that'd be good for all of us. Yeah. Yes, what do I see? What is there? What can I notice? What are the different details in the text that I can actually pick out? Good. For interpret, what question are we looking to answer? We start with what do I see? What does it mean? Yes, very good. Thanks, Brian. What does it mean? We want to understand what God meant so that we can do the third thing, apply what question are we looking to answer? Okay, how is it relevant, and what were you going to say? Yeah, what do I do with it? The way he um, says the question in his book is, how does it work? It does work. It is relevant. It is something that you can put into your life. We just need to figure out how. And not just you, but others will need to apply it as well. So these are the steps that we want to practice and we want to know. Observe, interpret, apply. What do I see? What does it mean? And then, how does it work? Now, why is it so important to take time to observe before we interpret? Why is that important? Yes, Shane. That's right. You might read into 
you might be biased towards it. You might read in some meaning that's not actually there. You weren't fair to the text. And you might not even be able to come up with a, an understanding of the meaning in the first place. You say, oh, I don't know, a lot, of, a lot of things here. I don't really know what it means. I don't really know what he's trying to say. Well, you just got to take some time with it. You got to take some time to observe. Would it be okay if we only observed and we didn't, we didn't look to interpret or apply? I mean, we sure discuss, discover some interesting things, but why would that not be okay? Steve. Right. Yeah, that's right. While observation is important, it cannot be the only thing that we do with the Bible. We can't say, oh, look, oh, this verb is used in this way here, or oh, this word was repeated five times in this section. That doesn't mean anything unless you've actually put those pieces together into something that illustrates a principle, illustrates the message that God was communicating in that passage. Similarly, would it be okay if we observed and interpreted, but did not apply? And we understand what God was saying, but not apply. Would that be okay? Paul. That's right. And as I mentioned last week, gaining knowledge without application can actually be a dangerous thing. Because the scriptures say, he who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it to him it is sin. And to the one who knew his master's will and did not do it, he will be beaten with more stripes. The one who didn't know his master's will and still did deeds worthy of flogging, he will be beaten, but it will be with fewer, fewer stripes. So we definitely don't want to neglect the application step. We don't want to neglect any part of this method. Now, do you need to be a... Oh, no, let me ask this question. When it comes to observations, which sections of the Bible actually yield profitable observations? Which sections? Yes, Steve. Oh, very good. Going to that passage from, um, I think it's 1 Timothy 3.16 or 2 Timothy 3.16. Yeah, every section is profitable. Even if we come to it and say, oh, no, not another genealogy. Oh, oh no, another, another description of the of the sacrifices, okay, you got to put this much grain in there and uh, this much of an ephah and that. No, all of that's profitable. All of that's good. The scripture says it's good, and we actually took some time even to go through a genealogy last week, and we saw, yes, that it is good. No matter the section, all of it was intended by God, perfectly, perfectly placed by God, so we want to observe and study each one of those sections. Now, do you need to be a Bible expert to make profitable observations? Some people know the Bible a lot. Craig, do you need to be an expert? That's right. We all practice with it. And we, we, we might not consider ourselves experts, but what do you need, Greg, if you're going to profit from studying the Bible? Okay, yeah, you certainly need an intellect. You need an ability to rationalize because the, the word is communicated in a purposeful way. But what do you need if you're actually going to, or we can ask it another way, if you don't have something, what will you not be able to, or how will that prevent you from profiting? Yes, you, need, you do need the Holy Spirit, right? We, I don't want to de-emphasize the spiritual component of Bible study. You need the Holy Spirit if you're going to be able to understand it. You need to pray if you're going to profit from the Word. You need to discipline yourself to fight against the flesh, because the flesh is always going to want to draw you away from the Word, and sin is going to want to draw you away from the Word. And one other thing, maybe not so spiritually related, you need time. You don't have to be an expert, but you do need to take time if you're going to profit, through, if you're going to profit from the Word. 
If your Bible study is something like, okay, I've got this many chapters to read and I just want to get through it, I don't think you're really going to profit as much. It's really about spending the time on that section, even if it's a shorter section, if you're really going to profit from it, because then you can see more. Then you can actually take the time to observe. All right, very good. Um, just to, uh, to emphasize that point, we looked at a painting last week, and probably none of us would consider ourselves art critics or experts in art history, but when we looked at Da Vinci's Last Supper, we were able to pull out some meaningful observations. We were able to look at some specific things in that painting and even begin to put an interpretation to that painting, what the scene actually is of and why he might have chosen to do it. It's the same with the Bible. Hendricks actually says in this book, if you can read, you can study the Bible. And that's good news for us. I would even argue that Bible reading is Bible study. We're just taking the different words and details of the text and thinking about them, asking why they were put there in that order, and uncovering not just the words and descriptions, but the purposes behind those words, descriptions, and details. That's true reading. That's, that's the reading that you would use if you're, you're um, studying any piece of literature. That's exciting reading, and that's profitable reading. But how can we get better? How can we get better at Bible reading and better at observation? That's the step we've been focusing on. You may say to yourself, I may be able to see a certain amount now by just taking time to observe a certain passage, but I want to be able to observe more. How can I do that? Well, there are a couple answers to that question. One is practice. The more you take time to observe, the more you'll recognize what to look for. It's just like regular reading, right? You ask, uh, I got asked many times as a, when I was teaching English at Timothy, someone would say, oh, my, my student has a hard time with reading or has a hard time with English. How can he get better? Well, one of the answers is you just got to read because then you see patterns of what, what authors do. Okay, they always put the main idea at the top of the paragraph or um, the grammar goes this way if you're trying to indicate a clear thought. You gain that too from reading the Bible. And, or if we go back to the painting um, and analyzing a painting, if I were to show you another painting, especially if it was from the same time period about the same subject, you'll be thinking back to some of the things you observed in the first painting. You say, okay, I remember he did something special with the lines in The Last Supper. All the lines were pointing towards the center where Jesus was. What does he do with the lines in this painting? Or we might say, I remember there are specific objects that help me identify characters in The Last Supper. Are there any special objects in this next painting, in this new painting? That goes to show that when we observe certain things in the Bible, that's going to help us observe actually better and more in other biblical passages. So, if we want to get better, we definitely should practice. But another thing that we should do, and we can do, is talk about what we see with other people, with other people, especially here in the body. We all benefited from shared observations on both the painting and in the biblical passage that we studied last week, that we observed. And you may have noticed something that I wouldn't notice, or I may have noticed something that you didn't notice or wouldn't notice. So we can benefit one another by actually talking about our observations and the interpretation, the true interpretation and applications of a specific verse. And this seems to go along very well with what the scriptures tells us to do, right? Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron. So one man does what? Sharpens another, very good. That's, of course, metaphorical. 
But we can sharpen one another intellectually and spiritually by just talking to one another about the scriptures, about our own study. It's very encouraging. I think you probably can testify. When people are talking to you about the scriptures, you just find yourself uplifted. And it's even something that God commanded the people in the Old Testament to do. One of my, one of my favorite passages, Deuteronomy 6, 6-9, so specifically talking about what, what parents were supposed to do, but it says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He wanted Scripture to be constantly on the minds of the people, especially because they didn't have ready access to a written text. They relied mostly on just the heard text in, the, in, the, in that time period. But we have the opportunity to meditate on the Word and to help one another meditate on the Word and to, and to sharpen one another by talking about it. I hope maybe next week to hear some of your observations, maybe at the beginning of our Sunday School, about what you're reading. I hope that you are having some profitable study. I'd like to hear what you're observing and profiting from in your own study. Now, practicing and talking about our observations will definitely help us, but learning formally about certain types of observation can be another big benefit to us, and that's what I want to spend time today doing, or rather start doing. There are a lot of things that we can say about what you can observe and should observe in the Bible, and we can't do it all in one day. So even though... Um, even though in, in the bulletin and you saw on the, on the previous slide that today's lesson is supposed to be about digging more deeply, making and organizing advanced observations, this is probably going to be just part one. Uh, hopefully, maybe we'll just do it in two parts. I'll see how much we can get through today and next week. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. One caveat. Even though I put advanced in the title, don't be scared off by that. A lot of these observation types and the, these techniques of observation are really quite simple but they can yield us profound insight. So, with that, let's pray, and then we'll look at three types of observations that we can make and we should make when it comes to different Bible passages. Pray with me. Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you that the Word is understandable and it is life-giving. Lord, it is a is a true statement that you said in the scriptures that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There's something amazing about your book. There's something supernatural. There's something so beautiful and compelling about your book. So help us, God. Help us in our, in our study of it. Protect us from those things that would distract us from the word and that would make us say, oh, I don't know if that's really that profitable to pursue. Lord, bless this time today. Give us insight as we look at these different passages and these different observation types. Give me the ability to speak and to explain. I pray this would be a sweet time, Lord. Bless it for your own name's sake. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. The first three types of observation that we want to practice and look at today deal with the substance of the different texts that you read. Three categories. People, places, and time. Yeah, people, places, and time. If you need a way to remember, just remember PPT, like the little extension for a PowerPoint, right? If you ever work on the little PowerPoint document, PPT. Okay, anyways. P people, places, and time. And as we look at each one of these, we're going to look at some examples, and I'll, I'll need your help observing them. So let's start with people. One facet of the Bible that we want to observe and analyze is its people. 
God chose to include certain people and their experiences in the Bible for a reason. Not just to uh, have them in the Bible, but to actually have them happen. He allowed certain things to take place to David and, and to uh, Peter and all these different characters in the Bible because that was going to be important for when he wrote it down. So we want to take note. We want to observe. But we don't want to just know their names or even a few of the things that we did, but we want to come and understand them. What were they thinking in a certain instance? What were they feeling? What were they fearing? What was motivating them? Because the more that we can understand these different people in the Bible, the more we can learn from them. Either ways to imitate them or to not imitate them. Because we get both positive and negative examples. So what are we looking for? Anything that will give us insight into that person, into, into how they think, what they do. And we'll usually see that in three ways. Um, what do they actually do? What do they say? And what is said about them? What descriptions are given about them? And this is the way you'd analyze any person or character in a piece of literature. Trying to understand them, trying to figure out them, you need to look at what they say, what they do, and what descriptions are given of them. Let's take a look at an example and open your Bibles, because I won't be able to print the text for you. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Let's take a look at this section. We want to practice observation, but specifically observation relating to people, or in this case, a person. So Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. I'll read this section, and then I'll ask you for some observations on it. I'm reading from the New American Standard. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, we may have met this character before, but let's look at this passage as if for the first time, what do you notice about the person being talked about here? What's one thing? Yeah, Paul. Yeah, that Old Testament allusion says he's a messenger. Good. What else? Yeah, Rob. Yes. Not for many people in the scriptures that I can think of, we get a description of their diet, but we get one of John here, and it's unique. Locusts and wild honey. Now, locusts, if, you're, if you can't think of what that looks like, just kind of like a grasshopper. He eats bugs and wild honey. And they didn't tell us about any other food, so that's probably his main things. Okay. Wow. What else? Yeah, Steve. That's true. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. So even though we're hearing about this person, we already know that he's important because he's related to another person. Or at least that, that's one of the things we see here. What else? Greg. Yeah, yeah. Again, this is a, I, I looked this up because that, that definitely stuck out to me. And I'm like, did anybody else wear camel's hair in the Bible? I didn't see any description of that. So this, this, again, must be unique. This guy, he has a unique diet, and he also has unique clothing, camel's hair, and he has this leather belt. I looked up camel's hair. Apparently, camel's hair is made into some pretty nice garments today. You, you could probably buy something that is made out of camel's hair, but it might be expensive. But we're probably talking about something that wasn't quite so um, refined like a suit. I saw, like, camel hair, like a little jacket, a little suit jacket. But you're probably talking something a, a little, bit, little bit rougher looking. What else? Yeah, Paul. Yes. Yes. Okay, yeah. But we understand a little bit more about his clothing and his diet because of where he's living. Now, let's take a little moment to think about what is wilderness? It could be, could be desert. Now, when we think about wilderness today, we might be thinking of like, oh, yeah, getting close to nature, going out into the outdoors. You know, I've got to put my tent up there and bring my food for the fire. Well, let's think about how the Bible uses the word wilderness. Who else or where else do we see people in the wilderness? Right. The children of Israel were out in the wilderness. And what, what problems did they encounter in the wilderness? Now, this is for anybody. Or if you can remember. No water, right? One time they, they start clamoring with Moses and they say, why did you lead us out here into the wilderness to die of thirst? Or sometimes no food, right? God had to supernaturally provide food and water for them several times in the wilderness. Can we think of anybody else or any, any other group that was out in the wilderness? Beth? Jesus, right? And um, did Jesus encounter any challenges in the wilderness? Such as? Yeah, he was tempted in the wilderness, and that was another place where we see somebody who was not eating or, or drinking. He was actually fasting on purpose, but the only food that he got, or the only assistance that he got, had to come supernaturally from God through angels. So, when we think about John being out in the wilderness, that is quite intense. That's a place, that's like a, a wasteland. It's like a barren, even a desert. That's not just a place where you can go live off the land picking berries or something like that. That's a hard place to live in. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that interesting? He, he's going to be a preacher. He's going to be this messenger, but he's specifically going to be a messenger from the wilderness or in the wilderness. Good observation. Let's, th- let's hear a few more. Yeah, Bill. Very good. Yeah, very good. And that prophecy even tells us that he is going to come from the wilderness. So one of the reasons why he's there is going to be to fulfill prophecy. But God has another purpose, or he would seem to have another person purpose in putting John in the wilderness. Anything else? Yeah, so, yeah, that's a good observation. So maybe not all of the wilderness is desert. He also goes by the Jordan River, and 
he's baptizing there. I thought it was interesting. It talks about people coming out to see him. What people and, and how many? Well, what does it say? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, probably not literally every single person. But using the word all, certainly interesting, right? It's not just like a couple people went out and said, oh, oh look, there's a guy here. Oh, can you baptize me? There's a lot of people who came out to see John the Baptist. And not just see him, but be baptized by him and even confess their sins. So his ministry, his preparing, his being a messenger, reached presumably a lot of people or a good amount of people. And this is just one section about John. We hear about John in other passages. And he's really quite an interesting person. He's the same one when Pharisees come to be baptized, says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And he's also the same one. Hold on, let me find it where I wrote it down. He's also the same one when somebody tells him, hey, John, Jesus, the one he baptized, he's got more disciples than you. He's the one who responds by saying, he must increase, and I must what? Decrease. And he gives this whole analogy about being a, a, a bridegroom's friend. He says the bridegroom has the bride, but the friend of the bridegroom, he just rejoices for the bridegroom and the bride. I'm glad. I'm glad about what is happening and Jesus getting more disciples. He's the one that, that confronts Herod, Herod about his adultery, and as a result, what does Herod do to John? Somebody? That's right, he was thrown into prison. And from prison, he sends a, a messenger to Jesus, and he says, are, are you the one who was to come, or should we look for someone else? He's a complex character, or a complex person. We, we see some different things about him, and I'm, I'm not going to try and do the uh, interpretation for you, but hopefully you're getting an idea just from looking at these details of what kind of person John is. We didn't even talk about his one statement about one is coming after me whose sandal, whose, the thong of a sandal, I'm not worthy to untie. I'm not able, I'm not worthy, I'm not deserving to just go over and untie his shoe. I'm not worthy of that. This shows us something about this person, but he was just a person like you or me. This is exactly what we want to do when we encounter characters in the Bible, different people. We want to take time to observe them and understand them, and then we get a little bit more a picture of, of um, what kind of people they are and why they do what they do. However, to profitably observe people, you don't necessarily just have to go to the ones that are talked about a lot. Sometimes, people that are only mentioned briefly, you can still observe some pretty interesting and profitable things about them. Like, I'm just going to throw out a couple of names here, but all these people are featured in the Bible for a reason. Jethro, Ethan the Ezraite, Uriah, Agrippa, Demas. They appear a number of times, and we can observe things about them. I actually want to do that with one other character, one other person, Mark. And we're going to need to look actually at a few passages to do this. We'll go at them one at a time. Uh, Look at Acts 12.25. We're going to look at, there are not very many statements, but they do appear. A number in Acts, and then a few in the other books. Let's see if we can get to know this person who's credited with writing one of the Gospels, one of the descriptions of Jesus' life. Mark. Acts 12.25, rather than read each passage, 
passage. Go ahead and look at the verse and tell me what you can observe about Mark. Acts 12.25 is the first one. Yeah, Paul. Yes. This is very important because later on when we look at Acts, we won't see the name Mark. But we will see the name John. Sometimes we'll see the name Mark. But we've got to remember, we've got to realize he had another name. John, very good. Anything else from this verse? Yeah, probably from Jerusalem because Barnabas and Saul pick him up from Jerusalem. So either he's from Jerusalem or was in Jerusalem. That's a good observation. Let's, uh, just for the sake of time, let's keep moving in these passages. We know John's got, or Mark's got another name, John, and he, he went with Barnabas and Saul. Those are characters that you might be a little bit more familiar with. And he was picked up in Jerusalem. Acts 13.5. Turn over there real quick. What else do we learn or what can we observe about Mark? Also caught John. Yes, helper to... Yeah, and what were they doing? That's right. This is one of the missionary journeys, if I remember right. It's the first missionary journey. And John is their helper. It just says he's a helper. It doesn't say exactly what he did, but whatever they needed, he was helping them do it. And uh, anybody realize where they are? It says Salamis. Where is that? We're actually going to talk about locations a little bit later on, but this is in Cyprus, and that might give us a better idea of where, where he is. But then look at Acts 13.13. 13. What else do we learn about John Mark? That's right. He, it says, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. It says they were going to go from Paphos, which is another um, city in Cyprus, and they were going to go to Perga and Pamphylia. And Pamphylia is in Turkey. He doesn't go with them. He goes back to Jerusalem. Now, we're not told why here. It could be any number of reasons. Just from this passage, it could be he finished his time in ministry. He says, I told you I'm only going to come with you to Cyprus, and I'm done. Or maybe it was uh, somebody was sick, and he's like, you've got to get back to Jerusalem. Your mom's not doing too well. Okay, I've got to go. Or maybe it was he just wanted to quit. We don't really know. Let's see if we can find out more by looking at other passages. Go to Acts 15, 37 to 39. Yes. Okay. Oh, oh yeah. Ah, very good. Okay, I, did, I didn't even see that. Thank you for that observation. Uh, I don't know if his mother would be connected to his going back, but at least his mother is mentioned. All right, Acts 15, 37 to 39. What do we observe about Mark there? couple of verses to look at. Yeah, Paul? Right. 
Right. We don't know specifically what it was, but that word desert, I don't know if it's different in other translations, but that's pretty negative connotation, right? He deserted us and would not go to the work. If it was something, you know, an understandable reason why he had to leave, Paul wouldn't talk about Mark, or wouldn't talk about Mark in that way. He says he deserted us. He quit. He decided he didn't want to go any further. So we're getting a little bit more understanding of what was happening with Mark there, and maybe a little bit more into him and into his struggles. What else do you observe, though, regarding Mark in this passage? Yeah, Barnabas really wants to take Mark, even though he deserted them. It's interesting, right? And this becomes such a, you see it in the passage, this becomes such a big issue that Barnabas and Paul split up. He says, I'm not going to take Mark with us, Paul says. Barnabas says, but we have to take Mark with us. He says, we can't go together. And Barnabas and Mark go off to, I believe it's Cyprus, and then Paul takes Silas and goes somewhere else. This, uh, if I understand correctly, this is the last time we hear about Mark in Acts. Ooh, not a very good way to end our description of him. But that's not, the where, that's not where it ends, because he's also mentioned in some letters. And we get a little bit more insight into Barnabas and Mark in Colossians 4.10. Turn over there. What can you observe about Mark in Colossians 4.10? Yeah, Rich. Yes. He's the cousin of Barnabas. Oh, okay. So now we're beginning to piece this together a little bit, right? Mark wasn't just some random guy that Barnabas wanted to team up with. He was related. And so we can understand why a little bit more he would want to take Mark with them. But you, you can also see something else about Mark here. What else? Yes, yeah, Steve. That's right. Paul and Mark met again. And um, Colossians is, you see it there even in the verse, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. This must be when Paul's in prison, probably his first imprisonment. So Mark is with Paul then. This is sometime after the, those, uh, that first missionary journey. So this shows us that something has happened in the relationship between Paul and Mark, and even something about Mark's character. He even says in the passage, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. He's like, here's a, here's a guy I want you to welcome. He's somebody from me. He's somebody that I trust in, or he's somebody that I approve of. So we're getting more about Mark. And I have some other passages here, but just for the sake of time, I don't want to take you through them. But he's uh, featured again in Philemon. He says, Mark greets you again. In 2 Timothy, at the end of Paul's life, he says, only Luke is with me, but pick up Mark and bring him to see me because he's useful to me for ministry. So the story of Mark or the, the character Mark, this person Mark, there's even more to him than what was in Acts. And he wasn't just somebody who quit. He did. And that was a failure. That was a struggle. But he's someone who actually proved useful to Paul, and not just to Paul, but to Peter. Because in 1 Peter 5.13, he again is featured. Peter says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son, Mark. That's an interesting description. My son, Mark. He's with Peter as well. 
Now, we could take more time to think about and discuss those, but just to, to give you an idea, even these people who don't seem to be featured that much, we can observe some pretty cool things about them. And so, as you go back to your Bible study this, uh, today and this week, pay attention to the people. Not just the main characters, but even the ones that don't have names, or even the groups of people. And think about, why does the Bible give those different details about them? Okay. Questions about people? Now, we might be naturally drawn to look at people, but one of the things that we often overlook when looking at the Bible is the next type of observation that I want to talk about, and that's place. We want to look at people, but we also want to look at place. Now, the problem is that probably the reason that we don't pay attention to place that much is because we're not familiar with the places, right? We'd pay attention to the places in the Bible if they were things like Chicago or Las Vegas or Broadway or Newark because those are places that are relevant to us and that we know about. But when it says things like Thyatira or Shechem or uh, the Negev, that doesn't mean anything to us. But it did mean something to the people who were there. And we can actually um, get some of that meaning back if we take the time to observe these places. So that's what we want to do. You're asking questions like, what locations are mentioned in the text? What were they like? Sometimes the, the Bible will give us some of those clues. Sometimes we can use sources outside of the Bible, some historical sources. And how far was one place, uh, how far was one place from the next place? Briefly, let me show you an example of this in John chapter 1, verses 45 to 46. Turn over there in your Bibles. Okay, this is just two verses. I'll read it for you. Philip, this is John 1, 45 to 46. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the, prophet, the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Right. So what can we observe regarding places in these verses? Very good, right? Because of the way Nathaniel talks about it, kind of contemptuously. But Nazareth is an important town because what else do you observe here? Yeah, Paul. That's right. Jesus is from Nazareth. This place that Nathaniel speaks of almost contemptuously. Now, do we know where Nazareth actually is geographically? Anybody know? Say that again? Yes. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is useful. Let's take a look at a map. Hopefully I put one on here. Yes. Oh, I don't know if that's very seeable. Oh, yeah, it is. Okay. So on the left side, we have something that's a, a blow-up of almost all of Israel. And on the right side, we have a little bit of a zoom-in on where Nazareth is. It's in the land of Galilee. Now, Galilee, Nazareth, those are names that get talked about a lot in the New Testament. But we may say to ourselves, eh, where is that? Well, now we know. If we go to the, above Judea, above Samaria, you can see Galilee by the, what's called the Sea of Chinnereth or by the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Jesus lived. Nazareth there, kind of in the middle of Galilee, you can see it uh, next to uh, Mount Tabor there, uh, not too far from the Sea of Galilee. You may notice by looking at the map some other names that you recognize from the Bible. Capernaum, that's another place that Jesus spent a good amount of time, or Chorazin, or um, 
Bethsaida, all featured around the Sea of Galilee. And Galilee, like Nazareth, had a certain reputation. Just to fill you in on some other verses, John 7.41, this is when people are talking about Christ, we hear this. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going, going to come from Galilee, is he? Or John 7.51-52, this is where the the Jewish leaders were discussing whether Jesus could be the Christ. Nicodemus, when they were dismissing Jesus, Nicodemus says, hey, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? He says, we shouldn't dismiss him right away. We've got to actually hear about him. We've got to find out more about him. The others answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. we got an idea of this place, right? Even if we don't have secondary sources, historical sources, we can say just from the Bible, Galilee and Nazareth have a certain reputation, yet Jesus is from Galilee. Jesus lived in Galilee. Jesus was in Nazareth, and not just him. Who else comes from Galilee? Who else would come from Galilee? Yeah, the disciples. Uh, I think, without exception, they're all from Galilee. I could be wrong about that. I have to double-check. But they're all from this contemptible, or as what some described, a backwoods area. That's where God decided Jesus would be and call his disciples. And he spends a lot of time, a lot of his ministry, in Galilee, around that place. So if it was important for God to put Jesus there and to even put him in Nazareth, it should be important to us. We should say, ah, I want to observe that. I want to understand about that. And that, of course, is just an example of the different places that we can observe. Um, hmm. Yeah, let me, let me do another example real quick. I showed you something from the New Testament. Let's take a look at another example of locations in the Old Testament. So I have on the next slide. Yeah. Genesis. Genesis 11.31. All right, this goes from 1131 to chapter 12, verse 6. I don't know why I put 06 there. Anyways, I'll read the passage, and then we'll talk about it. Starting from 1131. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, the daughter-in-law, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur, the Chaldeans, in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, Terah died in Haran. And the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan and Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Okay, So you're 
should be tuned to locations at this point. You heard a number of locations. What can you observe or what can you tell me about the locations featured in these verses? Yeah, very good. It, it would be the promised land. It's the land that the Israelites are going to come back to. And Abraham is on his way there in this passage. What else? Probably you're asking yourself, where is Ur? Where is Haran? What's the significance of these cities? Where's Shechem? What is the Oak of Moreh? I feel like that's especially interesting. I cannot think of any, any driving directions today that you might look up on Google Maps that says, at the Oak of Mora or at the Oak of Manville, turn left, or something like that, right? This is a different time. This must have been quite a treat. But what about these different places? Well, again, this is where looking at a map or having some idea of where these locations are would be really helpful. Now, it says Ur of the Chaldeans. Maybe that name Chaldeans um, brings something to mind. Where would that be? Say that somewhere? Babylon, very good. And Babylon is approximately in what present-day country? Iraq, very good. So we see he's coming, I'll show you in, a, in just a minute on a map. He's coming from the Babylon area, and he's going to go up to um, Haran. Now, I had to look that one up. Haran is kind of at the top of Syria, bottom of Turkey. And then he goes down to Shechem, which is in Canaan. So let's take a look at a map. They include some other information on this map. As you can see, Ur, kind of near the Persian Gulf. This map actually has it uh, a little bit farther inland than what I saw on another map. Anyways, and they have they put in the route for us here. Um, I'm sure that there, there could be some discussion whether that's the exact route, but Haran there is at the top. And then Shechem down there at the bottom left. What do you notice about the locations by looking at this map? Ur, Haran, and Shechem. They are pretty far away from one another. And remember, this isn't, this isn't the time where you can travel by car or by, by plane. This is going to be by foot or by animal. I, I looked up, one source said that it's about 600 miles from Ur to Haran and about 500 miles from Haran to Shechem. So it's a good long trek. Anything else you notice about these locations? Yeah, Shechem seems to be almost near the same latitude as Ur. So we might ask, well, psh, why didn't you just go straight there? Why do you take this detour up to Haran? Any ideas? Beth? Say that again. Yes, and how likely was he to find water by going straight over? That's right. If you um, look at a, an image of that area today, it's almost all desert. So there's a reason he had to go north. And you may notice he kind of goes along the river. That's what, what they surmise here. So going up to Haran and then down to Shechem. So we're getting an understanding here. We're getting an understanding of this long journey. And remember, there's a promise connected to this whole thing. That he's, he's not traveling because um, for, for any random reason, but God specifically tells him, go out from your land, from your relatives. Now it's interesting. Notice in the text where that call to leave his people is given. What location? 
Where is he told? Where is he given this prophecy of blessing? Yeah, it's in Haran. And I say, oh, so he left from Ur to Haran before he even heard the prophecy. He, he just had to leave Haran and go to Canaan. Well, the text also says that they had, when they originally sent out, set out from Ur, they were already on their way to Canaan. They just stopped in Haran and then settled there. We get another insight on this passage actually from the New Testament. Turn real quick to Acts 7.2. This is Stephen speaking to the, I believe it's the Sanhedrin, defending himself against accusations of being a blasphemer. And he rehearses some biblical history, and one of the things he talks about is Abraham. Look at Acts 7.2, and we'll look at verse 2 to 4. Acts 7, verse 2. And this is Stephen talking. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. So this gives us a little bit more insight, right? What do you notice? Can you explain that? Okay. Um, it is interesting that in the, in the prophecy given there, he said, go to the land that I will show you. And it doesn't say Canaan. Though the account in Genesis does say they left from Ur to go to Canaan. So I don't know when exactly God filled him in that Canaan was going to be the place he was going. But in the, in the prophecy that we're given, he just says to the land that I will show you. So even if he knew he was going to Canaan, he probably didn't know where in Canaan he was going. In fact, even when he gets to Shechem, he keeps on moving. God brings him to other different places. So that's a good observation. What else do you notice? Yeah, great. That's right. That is true. I, for right, right now, I'm thinking to myself, oh, where's Mesopotamia? I can't exactly remember. But yeah, we do have that information that it's called Mesopotamia, so that, that may change our, our view of, of where Ur is or where Babylon is. But hopefully you notice one of the, one of the things I find very striking there. The call, or Eric, did you have something? That's right. Right, right. So we might, we might get that thought in our mind and say, oh, did Stephen make an error here? Did he just get it a little bit off? I mean, Genesis says that he got the call in Iran, but Stephen claims that it took place before that. Remember Jesus' statement, Scripture cannot be broken. Stephen, if he was trying to defend himself and say, I'm not a blasphemer, I know the Old Testament, if he made an error like that in the midst of the Sanhedrin, that would be a bad idea. He was going to say something that proved he knew the Old Testament was not a blasphemer. So he, he had to be sure, he had to be right that Abram had this call in Ur rather than Haran. Are you going to say something to me?
That's really interesting too, right? If the call did indeed come from Ur, why did Terah come along? And why is Terah the one featured to be like the main leader in this, in this group? And then you, you saw from the Genesis account that he settles in Haran. It almost seems like he's putting down some roots a little bit, even though, according to Stephen, the call was to go to Canaan. So I think this tells us, or this fills in a little bit more details and maybe gives us, makes us ask a little bit more questions about, well, what is happening with Abraham on go, or before this journey started, as this journey started, that would bring these things about? One other thought, Rich? Okay, maybe because his father was with him, that changed the way that Abram was going to decide to follow God's command, uh, either to honor his father or, or what, whatever it was. But we're beginning to think about why he might have done those certain things because we're observing the text. Now, we can say more, we can discuss this, but just to show you again, knowledge of these places, we wouldn't even begin to be able to discuss and to understand those types of things or see what could be a hesitation in Abraham to go to Palestine if we didn't know where they were. If we, didn't, if we didn't observe these details about place. So, when you go back to your Bible reading this week, make sure that you also look for place. Not just cities and countries, but uh, even, even just the desert or the synagogue or the marketplace. These all were significant details put in the Bible. All right. The last thing I want to talk about, the last thing I want us to practice observing is about time. Time like place, is another thing that we often overlook when it comes to the Bible. We'll look briefly at one passage, and then we'll look at, hopefully, have still have enough time to look a little bit more in depth in the Mark passage. When we're looking at time, we're looking to answer some of these questions. When is something happening? How much time has passed between certain events? And is the sequence of events significant? On that last point, let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. This will be kind of quick. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and uh, the verse in chapter 2, verse 15, is, is related, so I'll bring that out to you in just a second. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, says this, This is right after the creation of man and woman. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then, in chapter 2, verse 15, it also says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now, you may think to yourself, I don't really notice any time details here, but thinking about the sequence of events in Genesis, particularly the beginning of Genesis, what do you notice? God tells man and woman to do something in the chapter 1, and then we're told Adam's placed in the garden in chapter 2. Yeah. 
And what are they to do, Paul, according to these verses? Very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He says, fill the earth. He says, um, subdue it, rule it. And then in the chapter 2, it talk, or what were you going to say, Greg? Okay, yes, so that's a, that's a really good observation. Chapter 2 actually goes back a little bit. It expands on something that was said in Chapter 1, and that's a good observation because that, that, that definitely being placed in the garden and he's not with Eve at that point, that definitely goes back a little bit in time. But um, these commands to, to, or it says in 2.15, he was supposed to cultivate the garden and keep it. And he was also supposed to fill the earth, subdue it, and rule it. He's given a task, right? He's given something to do. He's given work. Now, when we think about work, I don't know what comes to your mind, but something hasn't happened yet. And this is going to be really helpful and important for us when we think about work. What has not happened before these commands to work in a certain way in Genesis? The fall, right? Sin. They didn't fall in sin. And that's going to tell us something about work, right? That work was something that God gave in his perfect world, in his world without sin. We may think of of, work. I think of a perfect world without work. No, God says, no, work is good. Work is perfect. Now, yes, work becomes hard, especially after the fall where God makes that labor painful. But work itself is good. And we can see that just by observing the time. This order of events, this sequence, is even featured in chapter 2 when it talks about the creation of man and woman, right? Man was created first, woman created second. We say, well, what's, that? what's the importance of that? Uh-huh, it's pretty important. You go to the New Testament, the writers make a big deal out of that in terms of discussing the family roles and roles of men and women in the church. He says, Adam was created first, Eve was created second. So again, time and sequence are important things to observe. The last thing I want to show you is in Mark. Go turn to Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> we only have a few minutes, so I'll kind of do the express version of this passage. Mark chapter 1. We did come to this passage earlier to look at John the Baptist, but now I'll look further down, verses 21 to 39. We're going to focus on Jesus here. Okay, I'll read the passage real quick, emphasizing certain things, and then I'll just make a few comments afterwards, and then we will close. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they, this is Jesus and a few of his disciples that he just called, they went into Capernaum. Hey, we know where that is now. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, And he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed. 
so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they had come out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to him about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. And when evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely, lonely place and was praying there. I want to stop right there. Okay, we don't have time to go through all the different observations or to, to just for you to look yourselves. Perhaps you're noticing, though, the different time descriptions there. They're actually a lot. It says he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He was in Capernaum on the Sabbath. And right after the, the man was healed, it says the news went everywhere in Galilee. And right after he leaves the synagogue, he goes to Simon Peter's house. He heals his mother-in-law. And right after he heals her, she starts waiting on them. She starts serving them. And right after that, it tells us that when evening had come, when the sun went down, people were bringing all who were ill. Just a quick question. Why do you think, or hmm, can you give a reason why that description would be important? After the sun went down, in evening, people brought people to Jesus to heal him. Yeah. Ah, which means what? Very good. And they couldn't do a certain amount of work, right? And if you had to carry somebody, that might be constituted as work to bring them to Jesus. So yeah, they had to wait. They, they were probably chomping at the bit. They wanted to get to Jesus, but they're like, ah, it's a Sabbath, we can't go. Until the sun went down, and that constituted the end of the day. And so that's when everybody gathers outside the door. And so whatever Jesus was doing, the rest of his day was taken over by these people. And he probably healed into the night, just healing, casting out demons. But then notice verse 35. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose, went out, and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. Mark wanted us to know that even with all that took place the previous day, Jesus got up early the next morning to go pray by himself. This is significant. We won't go through all the interpretation, but those things are put there. And so as you go through your Bible reading, think not only about people and, and try to understand them. Don't think only about place and trying to figure out where they are and what you can know about those places, how far they are from one another. But also think about time, the order of events, the day, the time of day, the year, the difference between the years, because they're all given by God and they can all show us more of that picture so that we can come to that interpretation that God wanted us to see. Okay, let's uh, close in prayer. Next week, we'll take a look at some observation types that aren't so much about the content as the form of the writing itself. Take a look at some things like grammar, structure, or maybe even repetition if we get to that. So those are just a little taste of what's to come. All right, let's pray. Holy God, thank you for this time. I pray that you would bless each person here as he or she goes back into his Bible reading. Lord, make it so profitable. Give them insight, Lord, as they look at people, place, and time. 
And uh, not just those things, Lord. Help them to observe more, give them wisdom, guide them by your spirit, and guide me, God. Uh, Bless the food and refreshments, Lord, and bless the fellowship now, and bless the rest of the service today. Equip the pastor as he brings the word, Lord, and and allow us to uh, drink deeply from that. Pray this in your name. Amen.